Good morning, Marcus Howard. How are you? Tired, but I'm managing. What what, what time uh, what time of day do we find ourselves? <laughs> it is literally six forty a.m. The sun has just risen. <laughs> so here's the thing, man. This is a this is all time first uh, podcast with coffee, and uh, and I'm super excited about it because I found another I found another pre dawn grinder uh, in the Tampa Bay area. And uh, I didn't know how many members of the tribe there were. Now I've, I've found one more, right? And uh, and we've got a mutual friend in, in Rich Haruska that um, that uh, is also part of that tribe. And and uh, when I told him we were going to get together for this, he was like, "Okay, good. Two grinders getting together, talking talking uh, entrepreneurship." Um, but good to see you. And the reason why we're doing this uh, so doggone early in the morning, um, matter of fact, the sun is rising right outside. Is uh, you know, you've uh, you balance. So you first of all, you you juggle you juggle a lot of stuff. First of all, you're 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 a dad, and you're a dad to two little tykes that are under uh, under the age of a couple few years, right? So 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 you balance the. Just walk me through the list of the things that you juggle in your life. Sure. In your day. Sure. So first and foremost, uh, and this is quite candidly a struggle for me to do this this well on a consistent basis. You know, I'm a husband and father, uh, completely devoted to my family. But what's what's a challenge is balancing being present to the three of them, all three of them, amongst all the other things and getting ready to list. Um, <laughs> I'm a full time uh, programmer at Gerdau. Mm -hmm. So from, you know, 40 plus hours a week, eight to five ish. Uh, I have a programmer for a full stack developer for their innovation team, their multinational steel company. They're globally based in Brazil and Tampa Bay is their headquarters for North America. Uh, outside of that, my brother and I are building an experiential marketing agency that helps colleges and other non-endemic brands more effectively engage younger audiences. So not only are we consulting with companies, um, but we also build a suite of products and services that we offer to those companies in addition to some other company or products. So we're, we're consulting and building products. And in addition to that, I'm the president of the Tampa Association of Gaming. It's a nonprofit dedicated to growing the gaming industry and STEAM youth programs here in the Tampa Bay region. You may have seen the article yesterday uh, from Tampa Bay Business Journal. Yep. In addition to that, I'm an advisor for Game Credits. It's the world's first gaming cryptocurrency that launched in 2014. I'm an esports advisor for them. There are some other things I'm under NDA for that I can't share, but that's the short list. <laughs> yeah, I think I was going to say, let everybody get comfortable because uh, you, you, you're involved in a lot of things and everything you do and you're really passionate about. And, and uh, they're all like, they all have like big purpose to them. That's what's kind of cool about the stuff that I, I think that you do. And I think whatever, that's what everybody admires about you. We all follow you on social media. That um, everything you do, you do with intense purpose, and uh, more so than anybody else, I think I know. Um, but uh, this is this is fun, and uh, appreciate you you getting me in this morning. We, we I was like, well, uh, you know, with your schedule, we were talking. It was like, well, we can either do it at night when, when or we can do it in the morning night or the evening night. <laughs> Which night are we gonna do it? So it's good. It's good. Um, so Marcus, uh, I like to. I've got a little a tradition I do with my uh, with my with my guests. I throw up a, a slide that um, that just kind of has an opening question on it that uh, I pull out of uh, our some of our conversations prior, and I'm going to throw this one up, and you just kind of you can tackle it, right? And so this is your question, right? Can and why should corporate support employeepreneurship, right? 
So I think you're perfectly qualified to answer this question. And uh, let's talk about that one, if you don't mind just jumping right on it. Sure. I, I agree 100% that um, corporate should employ, it should support employee. Oh, wow. That's what happens when we go to 30 in the morning, the coffee hasn't kicked in. Corporate should support employee entrepreneurship because it builds innovation within the business, which helps them create more revenue and more revenue opportunities. You know, they have the, the typical term entrepreneur that's, that's cultivating that entrepreneurship philosophy uh, as it applies to an internal business of, you know, a corporate entity. And that's one of the things that, that my full-time employer, Dow does exceptionally well. We've got multiple people who are on my innovation team that they hired who were either, you know, already working on their own companies like I was and am, or started their own companies. And it helps us bring that perspective of, of the lean startup methodology and, and failing fast and, and really being customer centric to a multinational steel company. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for them having that openness and, and willingness to invite people who may have a side hustle yeah. into the business. It's, it's not easy, right? Um, and, and I'll say here on the podcast, you and I had a conversation before, I, you know, I've, I've run against the, the rubber met the road a couple of times and, and they've had to sit me down and talk to me about that and I've had to make some adjustments. But by and large, it's been, you know, generally positive experience. And I've also, in addition to bringing that Lean Startup philosophy to Gerdau, I've helped integrate Gerdau with the local community. Uh, just this past week, and I helped the, the uh, basically the VP of, of HR for Gerdau connect with the local community around um, authentic opportunities to engage the youth for STEAM, um, you know, coding classes for at-risk youth. Yeah. So that that's something that they probably could have done themselves, but it was easier for me to do because I'm already integrated into the community through the startup yeah. ecosystem. And you know, um, you know, Marcus, the reason I, I use that, I, you know, it's fun to play with that word entrepreneurship because you know, there's wantapreneurs and solopreneurs, and you know, and 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 entrepreneurs, right? And the reason I went with that employeepreneur, right, instead of intrapreneurship, because, you know, intrapreneur, intrapreneurship gets thrown around a lot. It's a it's 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 a great thing, right? Intrapreneurship for sure. But I thought employeepreneurship was a really good one for you because you, you've got this uh, really pretty amazing company, uh, corporate company that that not only supports you with intrapreneurship, that you you take your 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 knowledge and skills and you help them with entrepreneurship. You help the company that way. You make the company better. And they of course, they love that. But they go an extra step. They they support employeepreneurship they they which basically implies that you're an employee of the company but you've got you know side projects that you do that um that they they support you in and they don't see as a threat and they understand that uh that you know it's uh, makes you a more whole person and makes you a better ultimately a better person and a better employee that that kind of almost indirectly can help the company whereas entrepreneurship directly helps the company but it takes a it takes a big com a, a, a special company i think to get the value of of, of supporting or allowing an employee to do things uh, outside of the outside of the job. Yeah, no, I give a lot of credit to Ben, my my direct report, uh, Ben Souza. He was an entrepreneur before he started working with Gerdau. I believe he sold this company, and I can't for the life of me now remember specifically what he did. But um, I'll have to see the articles, and so he can appreciate what it's like to go through this experience and the value that it creates, that journey, right, that perspective. 
and told me, you know, even when I was going through that rough patch back in November, that he and Gerdau always supports me in whatever I choose to do. If it's my company and, and if I if the situation required that I go focus on that full time and leave Gerdau, they would support me regardless. Um, or if I decided to stay and work on it in a, a lesser capacity so I could focus at work, they would support me as well. But I needed to make sure that I met my responsibilities at Gerdau because that was the the agreement that we made, right? Right. We respect that that commitment to Gerdau and delivering on those responsibilities. Well, this is where I get to tell tell my little story that I'm I'm uh, so you know uh, honored by. Is, excuse me, as you know, there's a very big successful consulting company here in in the Tampa Bay area that recently sold. It was called Tribridge, and um, the, the biggest uh, you know just one of the more successful companies in our region and frankly worldwide uh, i think when they when they sold they were definitely close to you know a thousand um consultants in the team they would implement technology and cloud and all types of you know big enterprise software projects and so forth when i was there there was less than 100 of us less than 100 employees um maybe closer to 50 and um and so I was there for a few years, but I went to uh, the CEO, uh, Tony Benedetto at the time, who was a couple of rungs above me, by the way. I was in a cubicle and he was, you know, but I pulled him aside one day and just went and said, I feel like I've got a, you know, this this corporate thing is not, not necessarily for me. I feel like I'm going to have to, I've got to step away and pursue a startup and I've got an idea. And I just wanted to tell you, it was pretty bold of me, I think, to do that. I mean, like I said, I just grabbed him in the hallway and we pulled him into a room. I kind of knew him and he kind of knew me. Right. But in short, he said, you know, Alan, I, I, uh, I love it because he's not he was an entrepreneur himself. That's how he started this company. And of course, with his two partners and, and even though they weren't an entrepreneurial company anymore, they were running like a big company. He immediately got excited about it. But and I was, you know, one of the you know, one of a key, a key, a key player in the team at that time as a small team. And. And we're all billing, by the way. So that's a pretty big piece of revenue for one of your, one of your, your one of your, you know, consultants to walk out the door. He said, "Here, do me one thing." He said, um, "If you're not a, if you're not a thousand percent ready to roll right now," he said, "Give me a year. Give us, give us a year, and I'll be the first one to support you when you're ready to make that move." Mm-hmm. And that like really was an amazing feeling, right? That uh, and he and he was like, "I will, I will, you know, make phone calls and help you, right?" And that's exactly what happened. Nearly a, a year later, I finally got the big idea that I wanted, right? And, and I made the move. And he, I went into his office, and it was like a big smile on his face, smile on my face. One year later, and uh, and uh, he he uh, he immediately he closed the door and just started calling. I had appointments with investors before I could even get home that day. It was incredible, right? Um, so it isn't that uh, you know it's. It can it exists out there. And I think the key to this is this being open about it. Like I think that's the um, the key. Some things you can't be open with because it's it's your you know. Well, maybe you have to be open with everything. I don't know, but I feel like that's the commonality of both of our stories. We were we were upfront about it. Yeah, I've been radically transparent with them from the get go. And if you you've seen follow my my feed on LinkedIn or, or Facebook, I do the same thing because I I want people to understand everything that's involved with this experience. You and I had this conversation before as well. You know, so much about uh, the current ecosystem just highlights all of this success and only the success. It never talks about the fact that 90% of businesses fail uh, within the first five years or the fact that 70% of venture capital investments fail to return investments to their investors' portfolio. 
it's just, you know, headline after headline of acquisition and, and billion dollar valuation and users this and users that. Um, it's just, it's not realistic. Right. No, it's not. And, and, and we're going to get into that topic. It's on my top four list. We're going to get into for sure. Uh, uh, but before yeah. we do that, I want to uh, jump really quick into uh, our sponsor for this episode. So Secure Startup. Uh, so this is a, a cloud platform for helping um, startup founders um, handle and manage the documents, all the legal documents that go between them and investors, right? So so this is a dedicated platform. So all of those, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, term sheets and operating agreements and 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 uh, purchase agreements and all those good, all, all of those, you know, wonderful little documents that uh, you have to pass back and forth between an investor and a startup um, to get sign off on. Secure Startup manages that at securestartup.com. Um, surprisingly, how few few platforms are really dedicated to the startup game when it comes to those documents. So it takes a lot of the headache out of it on both on both sides of the equation. So that's Secure Startup. And um and, and that's uh, spot on with what we're talking about today. I would say what I want to do first, Marcus, is I, I, we also have a lot of we have some fun backstory here, man, because uh, when you and I first met a few years ago, uh, when, when I found out that you went to Georgia Southern University immediately, man, I was like, wow, because so you, you know this, I uh, my grandmother lived in Statesboro. Statesboro, Georgia, you know, I was, we're both Georgia kids, right? Yeah. Um, you, you were born near Atlanta. I was born in Savannah. Um, mm. And we met in the middle somehow. We didn't meet, but somehow in Statesboro and this little college town called Statesboro where my grandmother lived, I was a little kid and I used to, I'd go to her house and um, I spent on and off many years in Statesboro. So, so um, tell, tell me about real quick, just jump this Georgia Southern for a minute, if you don't mind, just what was it like mm. going to that university? First of all, I People don't realize how beautiful it is. First of all, it's a beautiful campus. Yeah, it's like the Savannah of of colleges. You know, yeah. in my mind, it's it's a amazing experience to kind of walk through. They made it very pedestrian friendly. There's you know the trees and the lakes, and it's it's its own little pocket of, of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was there for more than four years. Let's see, and I can remember uh, I started in August two thousand eight graduated, no, sorry, August, 2004, I graduated December, 2008. And then I got hired on by the school to work in their IT division for another four years or so. So from 2004 to 2013. Yeah. Nine years, nine years. Yeah. So you kind of like, you kind of like the place that a, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and you, and your brother was there too. So you talk about your brother. So this is the other cool thing about you. You've got, you've got this twin, you've got a twin brother, right? Malcolm. And, uh, Man, and I, the more I talk to you about it, the, I've only met Malcolm maybe once, and because uh, he actually, I think he's working, he lives in Savannah now, I think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with a, works for a big New York firm. Um, the uh, but you were telling me that you and your brother just have this. Um, now it's, it's everybody's going to understand that everybody knows that twins have a certain bond, right? But you guys have this extra bond that not all twins have, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, so both of us went to Georgia Southern. Uh, you know, I think that the bond started from the video games, right? <laughs> and and it's it's how we got into technology space into the interest of tech, the interest. Man, I need more coffee. The interest yeah, of coffee. technology <laughs> careers. Uh, you know, in the ninth grade, we were in the magnet school program, and they or they didn't. Our parents had to go buy us those expensive TI eighty three plus graphing calculators to do like log logarithmic functions and and all the, the complicated math you need those calculators for. 
we discovered you could play video games on them and turn them into those Game Boys, you know? <laughs> so that's all we did in class is play video games. So when we got to college, um, he pursued a, the computer science track and I did information technology, which happened to be in the same college. It's the College of Engineering and IT. Mm -hmm. And our parents walked us on campus during orientation and we happened to walk past the local grocery store on campus. And, you know, the, we were in the band in high school. So we had the opportunity to march in the band and we were on that track. We just happened to coincidentally pass the store and we asked if they were hiring. Well, our parents asked if they were hiring. <laughs> they said, well, you can either march in band with a $200 stipend from the school per semester outside or work inside in the grocery store in the air conditioning and get $200 a month. The math was really easy to do. Yeah. So we both did that for four years and then we joined the same fraternity. Uh, Iota Phi Theta uh, Fraternity Incorporated. It was founded in, in 1963 during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, that's a strong part of our, our back history. I don't know if I told you, my, my uncle marched with Dr. King. Uh, unfortunately, my grand, because of that, my grandmother's house was firebombed in 1972. Um, the fire people didn't go and put the fire out. Uh, so we that that's a strong part of our, our history. And, and so that resonated well with us, which is why we both did that. But that fraternity at the time only had one active member. So when we joined, it was me, my brother, and this third guy. Yeah. Uh, so we ended up spending a lot of time around each other there. And then we ended up getting a fraternity house. We were already kind of, we lived in the same freshman dorm. We lived in all the same dorms, basically. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, you, know, you were telling me earlier too, what was interesting is um, you guys, you, you started growing up in, a, in an all black neighborhood when you were smaller kid and then your parents moved and then you were moved into an all white neighborhood. You absolutely flipped the whole script in the middle of your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I, I had that perspective of, of being the majority and, and, and really kind of being uh, confused about seeing someone who didn't look like me in the space where, you know, my skin color is the only thing that I know. Uh, in my elementary school, there's maybe five or six white kids. Um, and it was just, we didn't, I didn't treat them any differently. It was just, it was always odd to see. It was, it was novel in my mind. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved from DeKalb County to Rockville County, you know, I happened to be the novelty, you know, my brother and my sister and I, uh, in that ecosystem. And even when, as we started to get through middle school and high school, I saw less and less black people because my brother and I, again, were on the accelerated track. Um, yep. and, and unfortunately, you know, if, if you don't have kind of the, the educational nurturing at a younger age, it's harder to get on that track as you get older. Yeah. So we ended up being, you know, one of three or four black people uh, in our classes consistently from basically middle school up until high school. But you, would you say that that, that you know, that advanced um, uh, kind of academic track, you know, maybe would did it, you feel like it helped a little bit um, because you weren't, you know, you already kind of, so to, so to speak, maybe special that you, that you, as opposed to just, you know, being one of the regulars, did you feel like that helped or, or no in terms of just feeling out of place or anything like that? Um, it was it was a bit out of place because we could feel um like the black community kind of ostracized us for being smart. Uh, um, and actually we, people used to pick on us when we were in, in grade school, uh, elementary school for being smart. You know, yeah. that's, that's, I think that's kids in general. Yeah. So ironically, you know, I, I understood kind of that pressure, that social pressure for, for intelligence, which then translated to race, yeah. <laughs> right? race and intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> 
um, it, it's, you know, you know, you know, dare I say, you know, this idea that, you know, you know, black kid being smart, like, is like, it was that, like, that's, that's total BS, right? That you, that, but that probably popped up here and there as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what you're getting at, right? Yeah. Um, and you guys, and, and how, how did you, how did you deal with it? You and your brother, but you had each other. So did you just kind of like blow, did you, I mean, I know it obviously affected and bothered you, but because you had your brother, were you guys able to kind of like insulate yourselves or kind of blow it up because you had each other? Was that a big, was that a big help? Yeah, I think it created a buffer. You know, I was telling you earlier, uh, I think it's standard practice for mm -hmm. uh, grade school systems. Whenever you have twins, I think by like kindergarten or first grade, they try to separate them into different teams because you know there's different teams right yeah so if there's 100 students you've got 50 students one team 50 students in the other they try to put the twins in different teams so that they're they learn to socialize with other people and don't build kind of this this kind of exclusive socializing ecosystem right um and so we did have that for like the first four years when we were in in DeKalb county but as soon as we moved to rockdale county we got on the accelerated track there were only so many classes that fit that curriculum track yeah. And because both of us were in the band that eliminated like different extracurricular activities because band only gets hosted at a certain time, which is probably yeah. the same time as basketball, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So he and I were always socializing. It was almost like, you know, the rest of that didn't matter as much. Yeah. And as a perfect example, I told you, you know, my brother got kicked out of the magnet school program at the end of ninth grade because he made yeah. that C yeah. um, and I got kicked out after 10th grade. But for so he and I were in the same classes in ninth grade and the same classes in 11th grade, but we went to two separate schools during 10th grade. And I remember that was a very dark period for him because a, well, both of us, but more so for him, one for having been separated, but also having to deal with the social pressure of being rejected from magnet school, because as soon as we got accepted to magnet school in eighth grade, people started picking at us more because they saw that we were leaving. I don't know if it was jealousy or envy yeah. or whatever it is. Right. Uh, but people were, were picking at him for being kicked out because I remember feeling that from them when I got back to the school, too. But he did it by himself for a whole year. So it's like you couldn't win either way. You got picked on, you know, getting into the, being the smart kid. And then, you, you know, of course, then you're going to be picked on because you, you, you kind of got bumped out. Right. Um, you know, success is, is uh, boy, success has a price, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like... We see this in the rest of your life, right? You <laughs> well, we had the same thing in college, right? When we joined our fraternity. So our, our dad's a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. It's one of uh, what they used to call the Great Eight, which became the Divine Nine when, when my fraternity joined that organization. And so relatively speaking, all the first eight fraternities in, and sororities in that organization were all founded in like the early 1900s, like 1904 mm. to 1911. Ours didn't get added. Ours wasn't founded until 1963 and didn't join the council until like 1980. 80 ish. So collectively, those eight organizations don't think highly of my fraternity. And on campus, we got hazed and picked on regularly, like on a weekly basis. <laughs> so I got to ask you about gaming right now, uh, because that's ultimately where, you know, this story, you know, will go in a big way. But um, you said you guys were playing games, you know, as a kid, like, was, did the gaming thing stay with, stay with you through, through college? And then your, then your jobs after college, were you guys just always still, you and I say you guys, you and your brother, were you, was gaming always there all the time? Yeah, the entire time, you know, again, you know, ninth grade, we, we took our math period time slot to just play video games. And, and in college, I specifically remember like the, the week that Halo 2 came out, I skipped the entire week of school, my brother did too, and my roommate, 
so that we could take our Xbox. This was the first generation Xbox. Yeah. Plug it into the TV um, in the lobby of our freshman dorm room and beat the game in a week. We skipped it in all three of us skipped an entire week of school. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, that is this that is that is this beautiful uh, beautiful thing. Which what every college kid should do, in my opinion, if 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 they're that into something, right? That's just some things deserve uh, some things deserve everything. Just stopping, and we'll deal with it. Um, yeah. uh, as a sidebar, my uh, my my daughter is really into Animal Crossing. She's she's actually in, in while well, in college, which started in high school, and then of course, in, and then in college. But um, she was so looking forward to this past spring break uh, so that she could have a whole week to just conquer Animal Crossing. Yeah. <laughs> and she did. But then the pandemic happened, right? So she, instead of like 50 hours, and now she's at three or 400 hours because, you know, it just kept going. <laughs> so yeah, everybody's playing video games these days. And, and it's interesting to see. I don't know if you saw, like, I think it was October last year, um, the World Health Organization declared that. Um, excessive gaming was an addiction and I'm not taking anything away from addiction because it's yeah. a serious topic, yeah. but it's ironic to see, you know, less than six months or roughly six months later, they issue another statement encouraging everyone to play video games as a, a social activity. Right. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And by the way, can we just say this? It's not going to, it's, it, this is not, you know, this is part of our society now in a big way. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is the new future. Like, and we, and I think you and I had a good big conversation around this. Like it's the, uh, the brain muscle is being dramatically, uh, advanced, I think by, by gaming, we need to em em embrace that. This is probably a lot of how humans are going to survive and thrive and evolve. Um, it's so funny, you know, older generation people may scoff at it. Right. But th this is, um, there is, you know, it's so funny because older generation will, you know, they're the ones who who couldn't who who couldn't stop consuming television, uh, you know, for you know for uh, five hours a day and fifty hours a week, whatever a week. And then now they don't understand why kids play so many video games, right? And meanwhile, there's no comparison between consuming, you know, uh, brain dead television versus all the 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 brain activity of of video gaming. And, and how you're actually um, you're developing, you know, you're, you're doing something actually productive in a way with gaming. Maybe speak to that, like the, the whole, um, just the whole mental, maybe some of the mental advantages that people get from gaming. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I regularly joke that I learned more about business from playing video games than I did from my minor in really? management at Georgia Southern. And that's oh, no man. knock I on Georgia Southern. I got, I got to hear that. This is good. I got to hear There's this. No, that's no knock on Georgia Southern's management program. It's excellent. No, but it's the all... degree to which video games engage you intellectually is is sorely misunderstood. Yeah. Um, you know, you're always having to make split second decisions. Um, in many cases, solve very elaborate puzzles. Um, if you're playing a multiplayer game, now you've got that that social communication, right? We have to coordinate and plan with other people who either might be computer controlled or maybe human controlled, which makes it even more complex. And I think you and I talked about this before. There's research starting to indicate that VR video games are being used as an effective treatment for dementia in senior citizens. And there's also research that suggests that professional esports athletes are showing the same degree of brain engagement and stress that traditional sports players experience when they're on the field. Yeah. So there's just this major stigma that's, that's evolving 
Yeah. Uh, but it's getting less, but, but, you know, some of some generations or, or demographics are just not quite yet looking at everything that's in front of them and evaluating all of the value that's here. There is some negative value, right? It's, it's sedentary. Um, you know, obviously we had talked about that, that there's some harassment happening in the space, mm-hmm. but by and large, it's an amazing opportunity to engage in the future of society, which is digital to your point earlier. Yeah. And I would, and I would argue that this is maybe a big warm up to how we compete with computers or, 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 or work alongside of or just it coexists with computers in our, in this future. Right. I feel like, um, this is the, what, this is a great way for us to, uh, get ready for the AI and the future. Right. I feel like the video games is, um, is, is, got to be a path to how we coexist in the future <laughs> on the one end, i'm really excited to see like the ready player one yeah scenario right but i'm also deeply terrified of the matrix scenario <laughs> right. legitimately terrified because computers i could see them just evolving exponentially right yeah. once they they gain sentience they're just constantly self-improving yeah so that i think that would be good. the next game that someone should uh invent should be a game that literally uh, it challenges the player, the human player, to uh, kind of conquer and control the computer somehow, right? So, th- so that can be a way for us to somehow stay in control when AI is fully involved in here, right? <laughs> like, well, I've right? seen two two examples. I think uh, an AI computer basically beat the world's best chess player repeatedly, yeah. and he stopped playing against it because it, it kept beating him. And I've seen the same thing happen in video games, yeah. like the world's best League of Legends player has repeatedly lost against the AI built to be the best at, at um, League of Legends. So if that's the case, like, I don't want to see that at scale. I'm, if I'm honest, I don't want to see that at scale. No, so that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is, is some, could somebody invent a game or something that, that lets, because there's certain things that humans can do that uh, computers can never do. There's certain elements, there's certain things. So could there be a game that we, that plays to our strength and somehow, um, allows us to um, remain on the, with the upper hand over computers. I, I don't, it's a very uh, kind of a fuzzy question, but I'd love to see, instead of us trying to keep up or compete, uh, could there be a way for us to keep finding new ways to leverage our humanness to be on top? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That That's, that's definitely unique to humanity. Yeah. Uh, computers will never have that, mm-hmm. but is still we need to be very careful how we we uh, evolve and innovate in that space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you, you mentioned um, uh, speaking of uh, gaming, Marcus. You mentioned earlier the um, the some of the uh, kind of some of the ra- the racial challenges that even in the gaming industry, which I think a lot of people wouldn't would stop and go and go. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Right. And you're, you, you speak about this a lot. You, you, you spend a lot of time with it just, and, and we talked about two sides of it. You know, there's the, the kind of the trash talk part of it that happens in the game and, and everybody's online talking to each other and some of it's anonymous and all of that stuff. And then there's the um, uh, people uh, of color that are in the leadership positions in the industry that mm-hmm. are very limited and neither, um, whichever one you want to start with, but I know these are two, two, two problems in the industry. We could talk about the trash talk piece first, um, and, and I think it has its place in esports. Just like to, you were saying, you made a great point this past weekend that it has its place in, in traditional sports. It's it's one way to kind of psych out your opponent. It's another way to build like team chemistry and 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 really kind of amp yourself up. So those three different things happening. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But I think there there's definitely a, a clear line between that and, you know, harassment and threats, right? None of that would be allowed, I think, in traditional sports. Slurs, we, like you said. Slurs, right? We, I can't remember the, the guy who played for the Cleveland Browns, right? That whole mm-hmm. uh, scandal that happened. He says that, that a racial slur was said to him. Uh, I didn't watch the entire thing, obviously not on that team. So I don't know what's happening. But I can understand why that would invoke, you know, you to attack someone else. Um, because that's just a very, it's, it's, it's painful to, to your, your person, to yourself as, as an individual, you know, to, to degrade you as a human, as a person. Yeah. It's just, I I almost feel like that to me, what bugs me about it is, is it's kind of cowardly meaning like, I feel like, uh, you wouldn't say that to to me in real life. You wouldn't say that in real, you wouldn't be brave enough to say something like that in real life, but you know, you, you're sitting behind anonymous, uh, you know, a name and 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 you're you know throwing out racial slurs or maybe derogatory terms towards women or racial like any you know uh, and, and and making you feel more powerful and dominant right or whatever that's happening in that game and you would and, and when you cross that line into some of those really nasty things you those are things you wouldn't do in the you couldn't do in the real world they kick they kick your ass yeah they would they would <laughs> so so anyway that that's the thing about it to me like it's like that, that um, you know that's that's a um kind of an extra license that gets uh, allowed out there yeah you see the same problem with social media in general right again because of the anonymity twitter has a huge problem about it reddit has a huge problem about it twitch has a huge problem with it um and it's just something that the gaming industry needs to address because that's you want the Inclusion drives growth and success. And if you're having people who feel like they can't actively participate, then you're never going to have them truly be a part of the ecosystem. And you're missing out on that opportunity to have them engage. Yeah. And I feel like it would just incite. Now, if I'm a person, a minority, a, a woman or a man of color, uh, it, my, my first reaction is to swing back and to say something as nasty as I can in response. And now here we go. Let's go. Now we escalate. And now how is the world? I mean, now all of a sudden, it's it's um there's now we can just be more divided and more uh you know against each other let's let's make these battle lines between race and gender official which is yeah, and it attracts away from from the the primary you know purpose and experiences to be socializing and, and having fun right now you've got yeah. this other thing happening so yeah how, the heck, how could it be policed how, how could it be how could that be cleaned up I think the easiest thing like you mentioned before is addressing the culture, yeah. um, you know, educating the community, maybe creating an incentive for people to to genuinely want to educate themselves. And on the other side, you can use technology to potentially like scan conversations to detect slurs or derogatory statements and then issue warnings and then suspensions and bans. But I, I think you'll find if you look into what Activision's doing, because people are doing that with their screen names, I, they're they're going to invest a lot of money into that particular solution because they're challenging their community instead of helping the community grow. Right. Well, this this is a good. That's a good segue right into the the um, the the industry leadership, right, um, and and executives and the leadership in that in the industry. Um, are not represented when it comes to um, uh, women, uh, people of color. Like you look at the executive leadership of the gaming industry and what do you see? I see mostly white males and and it's not a surprise to me because the gaming industry is just part of the tech industry. And in the tech industry, I see mostly white males. 
right? I think um, the International Game Development Association is kind of the global professional ecosystem or, or uh, network for the gaming industry. They did a survey last year, they published back in January. I think only 2% of the gaming industry's professionals are black. Um, and just to put that in perspective, 12% of the population here in the US is black. And based on the esports survey, that fan survey that ESPN did in 2017, between roughly 20% of the fans for esports are black. So what that's saying is that black fans in the gaming industry over index in terms of their engagement for esports. Yeah. Um, and so you would expect to see at least some kind of representation either at the professional level as industry professionals, working professionals, or in the competitive scene, but you don't see it basically anywhere. It's me, it's like 15 other people, and that's it. Yeah. If you put and if you put Brown on top of that the, that number, you said twenty percent right. black. If you put Brown on that number, what are we? We're probably talking. I think we're, we're looking at roughly forty percent. Yeah, we're probably pushing forty percent. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to send you that. I meant to do that before, but yeah. If you, if you add Brown, like the Hispanic and, and Asian communities, you're looking at roughly forty to fifty percent. I think forty three percent. That right there is deserves a dramatic pause, right? Like. When it comes to the your your I say your industry because you're more you know I'm not the gamer you are for sure uh, uh, but when you look at that industry um, that's a dramatic pause that you know we're pushing fifty we're pushing fifty percent uh, uh, brown or black you know players and then the industry leadership is nowhere close to that right yeah it's a huge disconnect yeah. um, and, and that's what I've been very vocal about it particularly these last four weeks because <laughs> you, frankly I have. Marcus, you, being vocal is an understatement. You, you're like one of the only people I know that will literally call out uh, in social media. You will call out uh, an executive of, of an industry that, you know, <laughs> and it's awesome when you do it. Everybody, everybody kind of goes, whoa. And and you say, hey, so-and-so, what do you say about this? And uh, it's like, wow. And by the way, I've noticed you get you you get some responses on those. Some yeah. Big, and again, big... I'm not just trying to throw them under the bus. You know, even when I did it most recently with Activision, I apologize. I know that's got to be a very odd position. That, that's not something that you were hired to do in, in that conversation you weren't prepared to have. But yeah. it needs to be had either way. So, yeah, uh, somebody's going to have it. I'm going to start it if no one else will. I like uh, Marcus. That's that's what I, that's what's amazing about you, man, is um, you you you're willing to, um, you know, kind of what push the envelope or, or, or just get it out like. A lot of people would be afraid to do the, the afraid to do it, right? They'd be afraid to do it. And you just don't have fear around that stuff, you know. I I, I just can tell you, it's it blows, it's so impressive. It's inspiring, on actually, I, not just to me personally. I think a lot of people watch you do what you do, and you do it with class, by the way. When you do call something out, you 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 like you just did here, you you qualify it, and you and you make a nice statement about, hey, this may not be fair to you, and or I know, you know, you say a lot of things around it to make sure that it's it's being said with respect, but but mm -hmm. but. But but still, it needs to be uh, asked, and the people and the people in power are the only ones that can really make changes. So, but you put that out there. I think a lot of people walk away from the stuff you do, and end up doing versions of it in their own lives that you don't even realize the ripple effect that I think you're having. I appreciate that. And again, you know, it goes back to um, you know years of being uh, ridiculed and, and, and attacked and bullied, right? Uh, or, or picked at. I just built yeah. thick skin and. And I didn't used to do that when I first started my entrepreneurship journey because I always thought, oh man, what if that keeps me from getting an investment? And then I got to the point where it's like, oh, I've been trying to raise capital for seven years and I only raised five grand. Who cares what I do? Because it's not gonna make me less investable. <laughs> yeah, 
you, you might as well flip flip this thing over and do it the other way. Right, right, right. It can't get any worse than, than only getting five grand. So, you know, again, I maintain the respect. I maintain the tact, but I challenge the status quo. Uh, you know, I challenge the people who are in power who have the means to create the change. I don't have the means to, to directly create the change, but I have the means to create the conversation to at least invite the people in power to make the change or hold them accountable if they don't. I, I just, again, and I, I just like the way you do it. You just do it with, 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 um, with respect and professionally. And I think that's just, that's pretty, that's the coolest part about it. And by the way, so that's a great segue into investment, right? So um, $5,000, Marcus, we got to do better than that. <laughs> we got to do better than that. And, and so let's talk about, let's talk about that. So you, you and I, you know, as we know, I work in the startup game and, 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 um, you know, raised capital personally years back with my own startups. And, and now I, I try to help other startups raise capital. And so you're talking to somebody who, who probably sees as much of the other side of the table as anybody. And you, you, this is a really good conversation for you and I, in terms of why, um, uh, you know, let's, we'll, We'll use we we'll separate. We know that we know that 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 women are really uh, are disproportionately able to you know they're they're disproportionately gain venture capital. It's 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 uh, it's deplorable, and but but I want to talk about uh, the and that gets talked about a lot by the way you know um, and and there's a lot of effort to try to improve women um, you know getting more women founders in the game, getting more capital towards women founders, and I see slowly uh, this is. Little rung by small rung being improved on the on the on the women founder side, but you do see a lot of uh, activity there, um, and that's uh, really really a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. And by the way, the data shows that women led companies uh, just dramatically outperform men led companies, startups that is by way of ROI and investor return. Um, go down the we go down the stretch, and so that's really great to see that that happening. Let's talk about the uh, the the black male, right? Um, yeah. In terms of uh, you know raising capital, getting you know trying to um, raise money for 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 their fund for their for their venture. Talk about that for a minute, from your perspective. Walking in, that, well, right from the application process to the first call to if you're lucky enough to get in the room and do a presentation. Walk me through what it's been like. Uh, I'll use one example. I won a startup competition in 2016 up in Pennsylvania. Um, I think I talked to you about this. Uh, it was a global competition. We got selected to the top three, uh, flew up there, had to take vacation for my day job. Again, you know, bootstrapping, trying to make it happen. And you've seen, I, I always dress professionally, but I dress to the culture of my business, my, my industry. So I wear my sports coat. I wear, you know, comic book t-shirt, you know, Underneath, jeans yeah. and, 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 you know, nice sneakers, clean sneakers. By the way, like so many white, white guy founders, by the way, that's... <laughs> Pretty standard fare for white guy founders. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I go to this event and, um, you know, it's maybe 100, 150 people inside of this remodeled um, fire station um, that become, that is now a venture capital building or firm fund. And I'm one of maybe 10 or 15 black people there, but I'm one of only one or two people who is black, who's there, who's not on the wait staff, right? Everyone else is like serving food or, or some non-guest role, right? Wow. And I remember very vividly this lady gave me this this look of disdain. She had her nose turned down when I stepped in because everyone else was kind of dressed like like uh, cocktail affair, right? Or or evening networking attire. Mm -hmm. 
and I show up and I'm not serving food, right? Yeah. And I'm also not dressed in evening attire. And she didn't know that I was one of the finalists and that I ultimately went on to win that competition. And then the next morning before I flew back to Florida, because I had to go back to work, I had a chance to speak with the managing director. I can't remember his name and I, um, I'm not going to call him out even if I did. Uh, but if, if I asked, I took that opportunity to see if he could invest in my company or what his thoughts were about me being participating and involved in that event. Um, his statement to me was, we're so glad that you were part of this experience because we never get any black applicants to any of our events. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was odd because I know that there's gotta be a healthy black ecosystem in every community. Yeah. Um, but for some reason in his ecosystem, he wasn't able to get connected to it. And so it's not, I don't think that he's racist. I just think that people are naturally social individuals and they like to stay connected to people who look like them and relate to them and work in their their professions. And if you don't actively try to seek out inclusion or different experiences, it's yeah. easy to create a tunnel and a funnel where you exclude out things that just don't look and, and, and work like you. You know, I think you just you just nailed it right there. You and I have talked about this at length about um, that, that, you know, it's, I think it's safe to say that the investor community is in, in let's just give them the benefit of the doubt is not inherently racist. Right. And, 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 or even, even to a certain degree, anti-woman, it, what it gets down to, we think it, what it gets down to is like lazy thinking. Right. And it even gets down to, um, we, we talked about this is that ultimately at the end of the day, subconsciously almost right. Someone ultimately goes with the person or the thing that looks like them or they can relate to and feel comfortable with um, because it has some kind of connection to their past or who they are. It looks like them or feels like them or something they can relate to. Right. Um, and that goes with when you, that goes for if you're buying something off the shelf or every kind of a, it's a kind of a human nature in life. We tend to we tend to like to uh, gravitate to things and, and investors. That's one of our theories. Right. When you and I talked is that one of the reasons why so many white males are able to gain investment over, you know, women and, 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 and even um, male minorities is because the, the, the investors themselves are, they, they see a younger version of themselves. Right. And, right. and, and it also feels like, Hey, I know what this, I know what this person kind of what their worldview and frameworks are. And that's familiar. And I kind of, and, and, you know, investors always think about risk and, and comfort and, and know, like, and trust. Right. And all of that stuff, without them realizing gets baked into their lens. Right. And now a woman or, 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 or a black man is just not, it's not as familiar. So it takes extra non-lazy thinking for them to kind of mm -hmm. like, okay, how, how can I begin to try to understand this, this person? Right. And I, and I, we talked about it just, it's, it's kind of, um, it's not as much purposeful as it is almost just not willing to put the work in. Right. It's, it's a form of risk aversion, right? Trying to do that requires you to think, um, to relate, to understand, to be empathic for, and that collectively creates stress, right? And stress is a trigger for anxiety and fear. And that, again, like you said, being risk averse, they're going to avoid the things that, that create risk, uh, you know, anxiety and fear. Yeah. And so I, I think it's that. And then it's also kind of the, the laziness that's built into the model, right? If the model, it, it's a bias that starts from the foundation and just continues to self-reinforce. So if if you have a portfolio of a hundred wins and all of your wins are from 
white male founders who are 34 or 28, then your your firm's thesis becomes that Give us more of those. Give, give us more of those. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. It, it, that's it. Right. It's like uh, this self uh, kind of, you know, it's it's and what's what's interesting. But what, what reason why we call it lazy thinking is because um, if you want to if you really want to go look at the data about, um, you know, what women and, and men of color can bring and you look at their success re record, um, it's 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 better. It's better. And but but uh, it, it so it's one of those things where, you know, you've if being more data driven and being willing to understand what that opportunity is. And, and frankly, too, I would say and this is something I want you to comment on. I think a, a, a black male founder just can take you to places that a white male founder can't take you in the, in the world, right? Can worldview can open up things that you otherwise as an investor, as a company couldn't, couldn't, uh, you know, access. And I'm not talking about just access in the black community. I'm talking about the way you, the way we think about problems, the way solving problems, the way you, the, 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 there's just a lot of, um, uh, different, different ways of, of attacking things there. And I know we know that women do things a lot differently and better in cases, but I think black males also, um, you know, have some, bring a lot to the table that, you, that the average white male won't have. Yeah. I think your, your experiences, you know, define your perspective and then you bring your perspective to the problems that you face in, in everyday life, including what, you know, startup challenges. Yeah. So the, there's definitely, and, and I think the reason that you see that women in minority led businesses or more generally more diverse teams are more successful is because they can bring those, that diverse range of perspectives to creating creative solutions. Right. As opposed to just having like this one uh, singular perspective and an approach towards solving a problem, especially now in today's global ecosystem. Right. You've yeah. got a, a diverse customer base. Right. Who may have different needs of your products or services. And if you only have one perspective in delivering those, then you're not addressing the needs of the entire uh, customer base. Whereas a diverse group can better address that, which means they can potentially generate more revenue. I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Right. Um, and that's really also, too, I think you're betting on the future. I think if you're an investor, right, because this this is we know every decade that clips off, we're more and more diverse as a as a, as a country and as a, as a world um, and, and not to mention the international uh, doors that are opening. So it, it's not even a safe I'm going to say it's not even the, it's not even a safe safe a bet to bet on the white uh, white male honestly as a you, you if you really want to step back and look at where you should be placing your bets for the you know and by the way investing is long term when it comes to the startup game right it's it's you're, you're looking at 10 20 year type runways right so if you step back and look at it you, you it's a it's a much smarter bet to uh to place a bet on 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 a diver on a uh on uh, a team of diverse a team of diversity not just a single founder but the team whether it be women or or, or men of color um they're more likely to that's going to that's going to be the the future world that we're heading to they're more likely to be successful over the next 20 years given given the way our world is becoming more and more diverse yeah i think uh, you know to your point if you're just investing in one demographic you know it, it's ironic because as i understand it very successful investors hedge their bets they build a very diverse portfolio they, they try right. not to over index in one one sector but if you're only investing in white males who are 28 you were doing exactly that Right. That's a high risk investment strategy. Yeah. I, and I would and I would argue that, you know, in 10 years, 
um, you, you can realize that that you kind of uh, you really you really had some error in, as an investor, and now you now you can watch the world have this big diverse um, success trajectory happening all around you in the world, and you didn't get to play a part because you were too lazy thinking, too narrow thinking, uh, too busy you know investing in what you were familiar with and what looked like you. And um, just not smart. And sometimes you have to appeal to investor types just from pure um, business smart, right? And it's, mm -hmm. and it's just not smart, even as an investor. It's not. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully we'll see some of that starting to change. Um, you know, I have seen here locally and across the, the country people launching new opportunity funds. Um, but I, I feel like part of that is people throwing money at the problem instead of addressing the real solution. And the other part of it is it's tremendous PR, right? So I, I, I question whether or not it's, it's sincere and, and how much of it is actually self-serving. Right. Uh, because for a perfect example here in Tampa Bay, James Faison runs the mainframe. He's been trying to raise a $10 million fund to invest in black owned businesses for the better part of a year or two years. And you know, he's gotten no traction here in the local ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, now we've got these these funds popping up to invest in early stage black businesses. Yeah, ran just, by, by, by white guys. <laughs> right, by, by white guys. And so they, they just could just as easily just give the money to him because they're never going to be able to match his ability to identify quality talent because they've not done it for however long, 10 plus years of their investment history. Right. And, and again, it's not to say that they're, they're racist. It's just you have not you don't have that skill set. So while you may get an investment here or there, you're not going to get the best possible deal flow as somebody who lives in that ecosystem, who speaks that language. Yeah, I, I love I, this is a great time. I just love and I just love coming back to the future. I love beating the drum on the future like it's uh, you, you're just not smart. You're not being you're just not uh, being a, a smart investor if you're not looking ahead and realizing that this is this is the um, the world um, that we're all we this is how the world is getting better and bigger all the time. Um, and I, uh, I, 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 I heard, um, I know we're getting close to the top and I want to get you uh, on with your day. I hear uh, some, uh, some, some kiddos in the background and I know that the, the, we got up early so we could do this before the job started. Um, I think the, 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 we covered all the big topics I wanted to cover. I think really where I'd, I would like to leave it is um, just, um, you know, talking a bit about, um, you know, what, what kind of, you know, what kind of message, um, you know, the one thing we didn't touch on enough, I think was, was the, the success bias. I think that's a good spot. I'd like to touch on before we go is the mental, um, the mental game of entrepreneurship, right? And this is, this is uh, colorblind, right? We all mm -hmm. have to struggle with this It's between the ears and the, all of the, um, headlines of, of raising more capital or like you said, valuations or acquisitions. And, and, and I call it success bias. We don't, we don't get enough of this, you know, meanwhile, all of us are on the struggle. <laughs> we're all in the struggle and we're all in entrepreneurship. Right. But we don't get to read about struggle and there's not enough talk about struggle. Right. I personally feel, and that's why with all my, with my speakers in my classroom and on, and on this podcast, I usually try to push people to talk about the struggle um, because I feel like that's to me, I feel like that's more inspiring to people um, not telling me about all your success, but tell me about what you what you had to struggle through. So I, I feel like just from an entrepreneur perspective, if you don't mind commenting a little bit on on that and, and maybe some of the unique struggle you've had that is not even race related. It's just entrepreneurship struggle. 
Great question. You know, and, and that's why, again, I've been so radically transparent about my journey because I, I recognize that as well. Like, I don't know if this, what I'm doing now will be successful or if it will fail. And if it is successful, I don't want to have contributed to the problem of like only showing people after the point that I was successful. And so I think the easiest it's, and it's also difficult for me to like recount with accurate detail, every struggle I've went, I've gone through. Yeah. So the best thing that I could do is just be very transparent about the here and now as I, I succeed and fail, because now you get kind of the, the full understanding of what it's like in, in the, the day in life of, of a bootstrap entrepreneur who can't raise venture capital, but also needs to work a full-time job, uh, which means another 20, 30 hours a week, you know, getting up early in order to make these types of things happen. Yeah. And, and it's funny because my wife and my in-laws, uh, they, they joke at me say that, you know, it's, here goes Marcus's entrepreneurship diary. <laughs> right. But, but it's important because I want to be able to point back, uh, it's, and show people that when they look at something that I say that happened, it happened exactly the way that I said that it did. And it's not me like repurposing the context of an event just to fit the success bias. Right. Yeah. So, so, so Marcus, you're clearly, uh, you know, in that build up struggle, you know, you're a dad with two little kids, of course, married and, and family and the full, full time job. And you, you, you're trying, you keep these, these side uh, projects going. Um, let me ask you a crazy question. I don't know if I always ask you where, uh, where, what's the, what's the, where's, where's Marcus in, in five years? You know, what, what would be a, what would be a place you'd like to be? Let me ask you different. Where would you like, where would you like to be in five years with your, um, business and entrepreneurial, uh, you know, life? I'd like to have an exit um, so that I can have the ability to focus. I think I, de I, a decent, I do a decent job of, of managing what I have now, but I yeah. think if I could focus 100% on entrepreneurship in the gaming industry, I could exponentially grow the impact I could create in the ecosystem. Uh, I just don't have that, that luxury right now. But I'd love to, to run a venture capital fund. I'd love to run a, a publishing studio for for family friendly indie games. You know, I still believe that the gaming industry's biggest problem and opportunity is game discovery. 75% of all PC games are created by independent game developers. But as of roughly, this is 2014, so the stats old now, it might, it most likely is worse. Less than 2% of the global gaming gaming industry's revenue went to indie games. Yeah. Or, or rather indie games created less than 2% of the global gaming industry's revenue, even though they produce 75% of the content on PC. I actually believe that problem exists across all platforms, but the data is only uh, accurately available for PC. Right. So I, I want to create an ecosystem where small businesses can be sustainable because I believe in small businesses as the future of, of our business ecosystem. Right. You, Marcus, you brought up PC. Uh, you know, this is, this is gaming that's on the personal computer. And, um, you know, gaming, you know, we got Xbox and, you know, PlayStation console games. We've got, you know, the PC, which is the, the physical computer. And we've got, uh, you know, mobile and all these different platforms out there. Um, and, you know, and I was talking, you know, we were, we were, you and I were talking about, um, you know, why we don't see more, um, players of, uh, of, of, of color get to the professional ranks or rise to the ranks in, in gaming. And, um, and I was, you, you pointed out something to me that I, I didn't know, of course, and didn't think of, and most people I don't think, think of, but you were explaining to me that the, 
the mo- the best games, the the ones that re- that really drive the biggest competition, require the most amount of um, hardware by way of PC hardware, you know, video video cards and memory and 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 um, and you said you need about three thousand dollars to really have a PC that can really uh, uh, that can really perform the kinds of games that people compete and go to the next level on. And a little light bulb went off when you were telling me this is like, and you were, you were, you kind of went, you were like, you know, Alan, this, this, this could be one of the reasons why we don't see um, enough players of color rising the ranks of, of professional gaming. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've got to have a high end machine with a good graphics card and you need a good screen that's 4k, right? Because every little detail means the difference between you winning and losing. If you can see like standard quality monitors don't have the definition where you can see someone virtually a thousand feet away, right? But but if you have a 4K monitor, you can see them. And if you're, you, you've got someone, and I hate to use a, a gun game as a metaphor, but this is the only one that makes sense right now. If you have somebody in your sights yeah. and because you have a low res screen and yeah. you can't see that someone's standing there, but they have a 4K screen and they can see you, they can shoot the, you, but you yeah. can't shoot them. Right. So there's that. So it's it's the high end machine with the expensive graphic cards, and graphics cards can easily be a thousand dollars just in the card, right? Then then you need the hard drive, a solid state drive, and and the the motherboard and the CPU. All this performance uh, helps keyboard. you. Didn't you tell me the keyboard was? <laughs> yeah, you know, expensive keyboards could be like you know fifty to hundred bucks. You get expensive mice. The the more expensive the mice are, the more precision they have, right? And the precision matters. Again, if you're shooting, precision definitely matters. Then the headphones they. There are higher quality, like two, three hundred dollar headphones that allow you to hear footsteps where the average headphone wouldn't let you hear. So like directional, you can hear somebody is is, you know, uh, two o'clock or or your eight o'clock. Your your headphones give you like 360 degree good headphones, 360 degree sound, just like you would in real life. Right. So that kind of competitive advantage it means the difference between winning and losing a match and being professional. And then you need like. That equipment, you need high high speed internet, right? Because if you have lag, lag kills, right? <laughs> lag kills. Uh, <laughs> and you need you need uh, well high speed internet, and then you need time and and space to train, just like you would if you wanted to be really good at basketball or football, right? You need a facility or the equipment in order to do that, and and potentially a coach. Some of the best pro athletes as younger students were coached. Yeah. So if you can't afford the equipment, you can't afford the internet, you can't afford the coach, then it's all the chips are stacked up against you. So this and this three thousand this three thousand dollar PC that's beyond the the budget of of most um, you know a lot of families. I mean that's not even going to happen. Yeah, it's not. And and I was on an international esports and gaming call a couple weeks ago, and, and there's a black individual there who's from the UK, and he made the great point that. You know, when he was in school, he used his student loans to save up for a computer where he could have spent it on beer or sneakers or whatever. And so I do agree with him with that. Right. If you want something bad enough, you'll find a means to to create that. Uh, But but that being said, there are so many people who don't have to go to that extreme in order to be successful. Upper. Hey, middle middle class, white America, three thousand dollars, little Johnny for Christmas. Here it comes. Right. 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 And, and then so then you look at, at Activision and, and again, I want I'm here to help them get better at this. But they have the Call of Duty League and they when you go and see the people on the stage, they're only playing on PCs and they only have white contestants. But Call of Duty as a game exists on console and on mobile devices. 
but the company is not giving the same kind of, of league support, competitive support for console and mobile as they do on PC. That's something they could very easily do. They could start a console league and a mobile league. Some games like Fortnite allow you to play across devices, right? right. It's a challenge because you don't have the same level of precision on a mobile device that you have on, on with a mouse, but they could definitely change the league structure to make it more inclusive, and they haven't. Right. So there's some there's some economic um, factors there that uh, a lot of people I don't think realize when it comes to that. And uh, so, um, and, you know, I, I don't you know what the answer could be there. There's a lot of cool answers. I mean, for sure that I mean, back to you in five years, I could see you doing so many cool things with the community for that, the gaming community. And maybe I could even see you helping, you know, Young, young kids of color get access to, to those kinds of equipment. Just today, I read in the paper that my local county here, Pinellas, they're, they're literally handing out laptops. Uh, this is this came out this morning. <laughs> I think it's 14,000. I think the number was they're handing out laptops in, 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 in my county, which obviously is going to be affluent white county, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, literally handing out laptops because of the, you know, the, the coronavirus. Now you have to work from home. And um, it just gives you an idea of the some disparity there. Um, economics, um, are such a factor for this kind of race issue is so much tied to economics. Yeah, I'm working with uh, Pastor Murphy of, of uh, Mount Zion Progressive Baptist Church in South St. Pete. Um, mm-hmm. I helped him add eSports to his proposal for Tangerine Plaza. I don't know if you've seen that in the news recently. It's a strip mall that was built over what used to be crack houses in, in the urban community in South St. Pete. Um, and, and his church and his community helped get those those crack houses bulldozed. But they had a sweet bay go into that strip mall. And unfortunately, because there wasn't enough uh, commercial interest from outside the urban community in that area, that low income community, the sweet bay wasn't sustainable, so they left. And then Walmart came in, same problem. You know, big name brand, but the urban community there, I think like the average household income is like $40,000. So it wasn't just enough money to, to sustain that restaurant or that grocery store, so they left. So the city, more or less repossessed the property and wanted to bring something back into it, but they wanted A, to be grocery related because otherwise there's a food desert in that area. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. That oh, means, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can't get access to, to fresh goods and, and yep. groceries, which creates a host of health issues. Yeah, probably plenty of fast food at best, right? But yeah, right, right. Uh, but they also wanted fries. it to be, be an innovative model because they know if just another grocery store goes in there, if it doesn't attract money and, and, and traffic, and business from outside that urban community, that nearby urban community, the same thing is going to happen. So I actually added a esports Steam Center concept to their proposal, where we would put thirty computers, basically a, a Steam Lab, inside their fresh goods concept, so that when parents go to get fresh goods, they have something for their kids to go do. That those computers can be both esports machines and also machines to learn how to build video games and learn to code. The goal is that we could help these kids become entrepreneurs and maybe even get the skills they need to go get hired at these lucrative career opportunities right here in Tampa Bay. You know, imagine if your your household income is like $40,000 and then your your 18-year-old child comes in and says, "Hey, I got hired at entry level role at 60 grand," right? Now that you double basically the household income for that house and you can scale that across the entire community. Imagine what that would do to to South St. Pete. Yeah. Imagine what that'll do to Tampa Bay. So that's what I'm really excited about. Projects like that, I'm really passionate yeah, about. Those that. are those are the kind of 
uh, systemic like foundational things you can do. They're like planting seeds. It's almost like a garden. It's like a planting a seed. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily instantly grow, but 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 if, if you keep watering it, that thing it becomes a tree or a large, and then it and then it can't be blown over by a storm, and it and it's not going away. You know, right. people don't get and don't realize the power of that stuff and how it, again economics is so tied to all a lot of these problems that, that we have in society that, that get a lot of it is tied to economics in so many big ways and it's mm-hmm. people i hate sometimes people like to think it's a lot of times it's just they throw the, the race thing there and it's it's but there's so much economics tied to the race problems we have and yeah. if we can get saying, to if we can get to the economics and and uh, things we can solve a lot of a lot of things above that uh, i agree with you after sending this video i saw from john hope bryant um on linkedin he, he basically explains 400 years of, of the history of black wealth in about 15, 20 minutes. I, I watched it. I, oh, okay, because, you saw it. Because you said it, I watched it. It was, yeah. it was, it was great. It was really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did, so, a freestyle. You know, he did a freestyle. It was <laughs> it, it was freestyle. It was awesome. He, he runs a, a group called or a foundation called the uh, Hope, Hope Foundation yep. or something. Yep. It's dedicated to, and it's not primarily the black community. It's, it's yep. low-income community. He's trying to increase... Uh, you know, financial equity. So helping people raise their credit scores above that that 500 area that you heard him reference where all crime happens around the country, regardless of skin color, but yes. it predominantly affects, you know, the black community. And and then, you know, going on from there to help people learn how to like do real estate investment the same way that he built his wealth. So I'm, I'm glad to see that he's doing that. I want to do something similar in, you know, the video game and esports space. Well, this is this is what's cool. I'm going to wrap this. We're going to wrap it up right here. This is what's great. I love how we we finished on this. Just this idea of the the, the Marcus Howard of five years from now, because I think that's that's what's cool, man. Because we all know everybody in this community in Tampa Bay who who know, like, and love you, man. Um, like you're our guy that we 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 know we're going to see big stuff in five plus years from now. You know, and um, you know you're raising kids, and you know you're trying to you're going to. You, you got a family and you're doing so many things that doesn't allow you to go at it, go at it full time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got a lot of people that, that, that admire and support you. And, and you, and, and it's like, you're going to be one of those guys in Tampa Bay that, that I, that's already changing Tampa Bay, whether you, you don't realize as much as you are, I promise you, you don't realize, but um, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to watch you do more and more it really is. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the community support, right? I'm definitely not doing this by myself. You know, I thank God for the support. I thank my family, both my immediate family here in, in Tampa Bay and then my, my family, my parents who live in Atlanta, you know, they've been supportive of the entrepreneurial journey for, for the whole seven years. You know, and that, that's not easy. Just having to explain to them what we've been doing and finally understand it, them challenging us. And, and it, again, you know, it hasn't been smooth sailing. There was one point where we almost got bankrupted We've got one, we received one cease and desist. We had to issue another cease and desist. We almost had to issue a restraining order. Uh, I've had to sleep on the ground, uh, you know, not the ground ground, but like the, the floor of, of my house when I lived in, in Georgia because we tried to grow too quickly and, and then we couldn't pay rent uh, so that the power got shut off. I had to, here in Florida, I've had to eat popcorn as a, a meal replacement for weeks. <laughs> This I had to decide between when your your single days of trying to start up to trying different startups, right? Right, right. Trying to just trying to figure it out, you know. Um, you know, making what I thought was a good decision and having to learn the hard way that it wasn't. <laughs> I've got battle wounds for days. <laughs> Man, you know that's going to be part two when I bring you back. We're going to do we're going to dive into that stuff because that's usually the stuff I go into in these things, right? <laughs> the yeah, popcorn yeah. and the sleeping on the floor and the and all that stuff, man. Um, 
And then, uh, but then you got smart and 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 found a, a great partner in your wife and got married and got the yeah. and now you got that great company you work for and you're resetting and, and reloading and uh, you know and I think um, that's pretty cool. So I promise you come back and tell me those stories. Yeah, I've got plenty of them. We, we have okay, we can do good. several. That's we can do a series. <laughs> good, that's a series. Well, Marcus, let me let you get after it. Uh, thank you so much for. Uh, giving me your morning and now you're going to be a little behind the rest of the day uh, thanks to yours truly but uh I, I appreciate you doing that i really do and can't wait till next time all right well thank you thank you uh, rich ruska the entire uh tampa bay community for supporting me and getting behind me I, you know i still need more support with what we're doing on gaming and esports so yep. I definitely i'll lean on you to to help me figure that out we could create i want to end on this note georgia's Gaming and esports industry in 2018 generated $830 million of direct economic impact. Just Georgia. The global esports industry is just over a billion dollars. So the gaming and esports industry in Georgia almost eclipsed the global esports industry. We could bring that same economic impact right here to Tampa Bay, uh, but I can't do it myself. Tag is just four or five people. We can't do it ourselves. We need businesses and investors and local government officials and schools to get behind us to make this happen. Uh, and we're here to do the work. We're here, we're qualified, we're, we're eager to do the work. We just need the support to make it happen. Love it, man. That's a beautiful place to end it. And count me um, as, as uh, someone in your corner that um, frankly, um, uh, you know, this, uh, just you and I getting, you know, reconnected here really, um, got, you got me inspired on this topic. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great week. We'll be in touch soon. Go rock on, man. See you soon. All right. All right. See you.